Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Gosh, I was talking with today's guest before we went live and the last time we connected was about nine years ago. He had just put out a book that became a bestseller and we had a podcast conversation around that. I recently stumbled on another piece of his that was published in the Harvard Business Review and it really spoke to me and I wanted to get him on the show to uh, share it with you because I think it's a It's a great way to kind of think about how to be more productive or more efficiently productive in these very strange times that we're going through right now as we record this. So it's going to be a great conversation. He is a best-selling author. The book you might remember that is my favorite is 18 Minutes. He's an executive coach and he's the founder and CEO of Bregman Partners. Welcome, Peter Bregman. Thank you. So nice to be here, Todd. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's been a long time. It's good to see your face. Uh, I'm glad uh, for the... uh, uh, lucky break and finding that article, which uh, popped the idea in my head to reconnect. So, and thank you for making some time to join us and carving out a few minutes for us. So, before we get into a discussion uh, around uh, this article of yours, take a minute or two and just remind the audience a bit about uh, you and your background and the work that you're out there doing. Yeah, so I work with CEOs and leadership teams mostly, and my focus is writing, coaching, and teaching mostly about leadership and about how we can be emotionally connected to the people we work with, that we, that to our clients and customers. And I'm focused a lot on this idea of emotional courage, the willingness to feel. My last book was leading with emotional courage. So I'm, I sort of mostly help leaders lead with emotional courage and inspire collective action on their most important work and kind of get people out of their own individual self-interest into a larger purpose that they can all commit to. Oh, Lord, we could have a two-hour conversation on that very idea. <laughs> but uh, as I said to you, uh, I did stumble upon this article. It's called, Your To-Do List Is In Fact Too Long. And it was published in the Harvard Business Review. It's about productivity. And the reason it struck me, Peter, and the reason I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about it was, is I'm in the midst myself of kind of rethinking how I'm organizing my time in my day. And I, I like to think that I have a pretty good, efficient process, but like all of us should do, we should be constantly tinkering and improving and tweaking and sometimes affecting major change if necessary. But I was inspired by some other writers who said, you don't even need a to-do list. If your guts and your instincts don't inform what you, the big thing you ought to be kind of doing, well, then you got a bigger problem. You got to talk about that. So I went through this whole process where I just deleted my to-do list and I thought, my instincts are going to tell me what I need to focus on. 
And, you know, uh, that, that kind of worked because you, you're, you're, your gut does tell you what you should be focused on. You know deep down what, what project, what big thing you should be working on. But I lost and I forgot about a lot of other smaller tasks that were important. And it just was a mess. And I wasn't kind of, I was trying to figure out what to do next. But then I came across your article. And it was a perfect hybrid of kind of what I've done and where I was trying to go. And so that's why I thought it'd be fun to come on and talk about the one thing approach. And so I guess the best way to kick this off is set the table. Talk about the struggles of guys like me and and virtually everyone else on the earth about how poorly we do our productivity and what we're doing wrong. Todd, if I just followed my instincts of like what I should do in the moment, I would get absolutely nothing accomplished. I would eat a ton of ice cream. I would binge watch Netflix. I would probably nap a little bit and uh, probably I would get some exercise done. But here's the thing. Think about a buffet. Think about going to a buffet and you go to a buffet and you almost guaranteed, I know I will almost guaranteed leave the buffet feeling stuffed, gross, undernourished because I will have eaten all the wrong things and overfed because I would have eaten too much of them. And the reason is because our instincts are terrible. And the reason our instincts are terrible is because what we want in the moment is different than what we want after the moment. So, you know, what I want to eat in the moment is different than what I want to have eaten at the end of the meal. Right, what I want to have eaten is like a salad with broccoli and some healthy dressing and maybe, you know, avocado for a healthy fat. What I want to eat in the moment is like a chubby hubby or fish food or, you know, one other, you know, some other pint of Ben and Jerry's. So the problem is, you know, not that we don't have good instincts, but the temptation to satisfy ourselves in the moment is much greater than we would like to believe. And so the idea that like, yeah, we're all good underneath it, which I believe, and we have good existential instincts. And if we just follow them, we'll, you will get the right things done. To me is like a lovely idea, but at least for me in my life doesn't work. So I have to be much more strategic and intentional about what I'm going to choose to do and what I'm going to choose not to do. So what I would then invariably do is I would generate this ridiculously large to-do list. And I was really proud of it. I worked really hard. I really made some devoted thinking towards, I want to cover, I want to get everything I need to be doing. I don't want to miss anything. I want to, and you talk about in the article, don't just put this big topic out there, uh, uh, this big goal. I mean, you got to break it down into smaller bits. So I didn't even do that. But at the end of that process, it was almost, it was embarrassingly intimidating how in the heck am I ever going to get through it? And at the end of the day, it was still ridiculously long. I didn't make a lot of progress. And then I would get panicked and then I would chip off a bunch of the small things to try to make progress and feel good about crossing the thing off the list. At the end of the day, the big thing I needed to be doing sat there because it was intimidating, scary, and, and hard work. I mean, we all, go in, we all fall into that trap, right? And then you just become a professional list maker. Uh, you don't actually spend time accomplishing anything. You spend your time managing and building this list, right? Well, and here's the problem. The problem is when you have such a long to-do list, in the end, you look at that to-do list and you still end up following your instincts. What's (laughs) going to be most fun to work on? What can I accomplish fastest? And you end up buying running sneakers instead of, you know, working on a difficult chapter of a book. So 
a long to-do list is like a massive buffet table, right? And there's a million choices and you can make, and in there somewhere is the right choice for you to make in that moment. But when you're staring at the whole buffet table, the temptation to eat the brownie is stronger than the temptation to eat, you know, the, the broccoli. broccoli. Yep. Yep. And so, so it's not that having a long list is bad. It's actually, I think, an important step in figuring out and taking everything that's in your head and putting it on on paper so that you can kind of get a view of everything that needs to get done. But then we have to go through this other step. And this other step is what I talk about mostly in the article, which is you have to be thoughtful and strategic and intentional and disciplined and measured about what is the next most important thing to work on. Now, the reality is we have limited time in our lives. So we're not going to get everything done in that list. When I talk to crowds, and it could be 5,000 people, and I'll say, raise your hand if you have things on your to-do list that are at least six months old, and every single person of 5,000 people raise their hands, right? So that's a guilt list. That's not a to-do list. And it's also not very useful in terms of informing what you need to work on. So what I have found is super helpful, and it's the sort of list equivalent of if you're working on something on your laptop, if you shut off every other window, you close off the internet, you turn off your phone, and you just focus on this one thing, chances are you're going to get it done and you're not going to be distracted by pings and beeps and a text that comes in that links to an article which links to seven other articles and 12 days later, you realize you haven't eaten or slept. And so the idea is to look at that list and be strategic and intentional and thoughtful about what is the most important thing for me to get done on this list. And probably it's going to be hard. Probably it's going to be hard. So then, and this has turned out to be really important. I literally take that thing and I write it on a blank piece of paper. And that is the only thing that is on my list. And then I take the other thing, which is much more of a memory list than a to-do list, and I put it aside and I work from that one thing list. And when I finish that one thing, what I advocate in the article, I think if I remember correctly, is literally, although this is not environmentally very sound, throw that piece of paper away and start a new piece of paper with your next one thing. What I actually do in my life is I cross out that one thing and I use that same piece of paper again because I can't stand to throw out piece of paper after piece of paper. But the idea is there's only one visible thing on that list and that is what you work on and you get it done. And then you can go back to your big list and choose your next. So the two things that really smacked me upside the head when I read this piece, that, that things, and these are the things you know, Peter, and we all know this stuff. And, and sometimes it takes a guy like Peter Bregman to just slap you upside the head and make you rethink this, is you gave me permission to maintain that big list. And in 51 years of making these ridiculously long lists, I always looked at it as this is my action list when you called it a memory list. And that changed my entire thinking on what this big list is because there's a thing that got to get done. These are projects that, that maybe aren't urgent, but they're important. And they got, and I don't want to forget them. And that's what happened to me when I just got rid of my list is I forgot all these things I had to do. And so I now have permission to maintain this list of things to do. But the key, the other, the second thing that really struck me was is to create that second piece of paper with the one thing you're supposed to be focusing on. And it probably is hard and it, and it should be. It's the thing that does advance uh, your values, probably does advance your business, uh, does advance your relationships, whatever the focus of the list is. But those were the two keys for me is that, all right, the big list is okay, but that's just 
kind of a memory list of everything you do have to do that you can then consult back with when you're done with that one thing. And you got to shut everything else out to focus on that one thing. And that's key too, right? I mean, you mentioned some distractions that we're all getting, particularly in these strange times. And especially if we're at home with kids knocking on the door and, and you know, the wife uh, begging you to take out the trash. I mean, you get distractions all the time. So it is key though to really hone in on that one thing and, and not stop until it's done, right? That's great, Todd. That's absolutely right. And it's great also that you have the insight and the self-awareness to be able to sort of look at your process and say, this doesn't work or, or what's working. What I'll say is that when I work with CEOs and leadership teams, we face this all the time. You know, I was talking with one company and they were saying, look, we really believe in priorities. That's why we have 20 of them. And, you know, my answer is that defies the definition of priority. You cannot have 20 priorities. If you have 20 priorities, nothing's going to get done. And so part of my work with leaders is to help them get super clear on what is the most important thing to achieve over the next 12 months. Let's really be clear as an organization, as a leadership team, as an executive group, there's a lot of things we need to accomplish, but what is the most important thing to achieve over the next 12 months? And then let's keep that thing front and center in every single meeting so we know whatever else happens, we are getting massive traction on this most important thing. And so, you know, it's hard for us to do as individuals. It's even harder to do when you're leading organizations. Yeah, no doubt about it. And we mentioned it earlier, but it bears repeating. Uh, the one thing can't be write a book. It does need to be broken down into manageable, but yet still significant and important steps, right? Exactly. So when I, you know, you can have that thing of write a book, but then you have to say, you know, what's something reasonable I can do in the next couple of hours? So it might be, write the introduction to the book. It might be write the first page of the introduction to the book. It might, you know, I don't know what it is, but to break it down. And I actually think break it down into a one sitting task mm. so that you really can hold yourself to, I'm sticking with this until I get this done. Otherwise you can kind of keep kicking the can down the road. So, so really break it down to what am I going to get done? I'm not, I'm going to make headway on this thing, but what am I going to start and complete in this next sitting. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, thanks for sharing some thoughts in that article. It really uh, in, kind of spoke to me as I was going through this process myself. So uh, thank you for writing it and appreciate you coming on to talk about it. I, did, uh, I didn't want to take too much of your time today, but I did want to shift. Uh, I mentioned uh, briefly earlier in the conversation that we, we are going through some really strange times right now. As we record this, we're in the still in the throes of this pandemic. We're going through some significant economic challenges in this recession. And a lot of people have lost work or their work is entirely different and it's continually changing at, at rapid speeds. We're in the midst of this significant and important social justice discussion around racism. I mean, there's just a million things in the air right now going, these are, these are strange, tough times. I wonder uh, for those listening who are just trying to survive and thrive and get through this in whatever form, whether they're a student in a college experience that did not unfold the way they were anticipating or that person who's been furloughed. I mean, there's just a lot of struggles out there. Any thoughts that you can share, any small bits of, of, of wisdom to help us kind of get through these times? And I guess it'd be, I would love for you to fold in some this uh, idea of the emotional courage behind that because that probably could be a significant thing to think about as we look at uh, what's out there and all these challenges. Yeah, it is. A, it is a crazy time. And it's a crazy time in that it is devastating for some people, like devastating for some people. And for others, it's inconvenient. 
And for some, it's actually been good for yeah. them. Yeah. So it's like this very, very strange time. And if the people for whom it's good don't really empathize with the people for whom it's disastrous, you, you get this massive disconnect. And it's strange to think like it could be good for anybody because we're in a pandemic and people are dying and et cetera. And the hard, you know, the reality, the truth is like there's some people who who are doing pretty well. And so so it's this, you know, it's this wide, vast disparity of experiences that we're having. And so emotional courage is the willingness to feel. And so what I would say is recognize that times like this bring up a tremendous number of feelings and every feeling that you have is okay. So you could be angry, you could be scared, you could be happy, even for people whom it's devastating might have feelings of joy at various points. And so it's, you know, emotional courage and the way we find our ground and the way we base our foundation is in being willing to be open to whatever feelings might be happening, to not repress them, to not push them away, to not deny them, but to feel them. And from a place in which you can then feel it, that is the place when you're grounded in that way and you're willing to feel everything, then you can truly connect with someone. And even if you're feeling joy, if you really can feel it in yourself, you're not trying to block it, you're not trying to, then I can sit and listen to you and be with you in your despair. And so to me, like one of the most important things is the courage to feel everything that you might be feeling. If you are willing to feel everything, then you can do anything. And that's really the gist of emotional courage. Yeah, that's great stuff. I appreciate uh, you talking about that because that was, uh, that's not the typical kind of advice that I've been getting. I've been talking to lots of folks on this show, trying to pull out these nuggets. And that's a different way to, to think about it. I mean, you mentioned earlier self-awareness. I mean, that's that's kind of the same thing, but not. Uh, I mean, that's an important thing for all of us to really, in the normal run of life when we're just busy doing a thousand things, you don't think you have time for self-awareness, but that's really important now, yeah? Yeah, I think we, we could tie these two parts of the conversation together, but it, unless I'm aware of what's going on, then I can't make discrete choices that work for me. And unless, and from my perspective, from an emotional courage perspective, unless I'm willing to feel everything, then I don't have those choices anymore because in order to not feel something, I'm going to restrict my behavior. I'm going to restrict my action. If I don't want to feel despair and you're feeling despair, I won't listen to you. I won't connect with you because that's going to be too scary. But if I'm willing to feel my own despair and I'm willing to feel your despair, then I can connect with you as a human. And by the way, in connecting with you, maybe that's where I find my joy. And so even in the context of the despair, then I have joy. So it's like we have to be very, very brave in order to be willing to feel things that we don't want to feel. And that allows us the freedom to act. Well, we have to be vulnerable. And, and there's a lot of people who say, well, I can't do that. That makes me look weak. And I think, I yeah. imagine you agree that, that it's actually a sign of power and strength. Yeah, it's absolutely. And, and courage. So I, I love that. Well, I promise not to take much of your time. Uh, I did want to ask you one last thing. Uh, when I read this great article, then I sent that email. I got this autoresponder back saying, hey, I'll get back to you uh, later. Uh, I'm non-sabbatical, kind of finishing up a, a new book. So I'm excited to hear about that. So if you could uh, take a minute and just give us a hint of uh, what's coming with this new book. Yeah, so it was actually when I spent the summer working on the proposal of the book, which I find much uh -huh. harder than the book. 
Yep. Um, and I'm writing the book with a good, a good friend of mine and a wise man, Howie Jacobson. And the book, I won't share the title yet because it's really a working title, but it's based on this idea that in psychology and in therapy, it's a truism that you can't change other people. You can only change yourself. Like that's just true, right? Everybody accepts that as true. Like if you have trouble with anyone, stop, don't worry. You can't change other people. You can only change yourself. So it's this truism in psychology that that's great, except that it's not true that you can change other people. I'm an executive coach. I, for a living, change people. Like that is what people pay me to do, that I do it every day. And there's a process to it. The problem is almost all the time, the things we do to try to change other people don't work because we're doing the wrong things. So the book is a very, very practical guide. It's a seven-step process. Here's what you say. Here's what you don't say. You know, here's what you avoid. Here's what you, you know, get drawn to that will help you help other people change. And it's what we have to do. If you're a leader in an organization, if you're a manager in an organization, it's your job to change other people. If you're a parent, it's your job to change other people. Like many of us have jobs that we have to change other people. So it's absolutely doable, but it's really about knowing what to do and how to do it so that you can achieve that. Boom. I can't wait for that. That's going to be great stuff. Any idea of roughly when uh, it'll be out uh, for us to read? Nope. We're, we're showing it to publishers now. So, Got so, it. Uh, Got it. so we don't know yet. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for that. That's going to be a fun project. Well, Peter, uh, before I let you go, uh, should anyone want to connect with you, uh, an audience, I will share a link to this article that we've been talking about in the show notes. So no, no fretting there. But Peter, should anyone want to connect with you, learn more about all your work, where do they go? Um, Bregmanpartners.com, B-R-E-G-M-A-N-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S.com. All right, Pete Bregman, executive coach, author, and founder and CEO of Bregman Partners. Peter, it was great to have you. Thanks for making some time to join us. A lot of fun to be here, Todd, as always. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, pleasure. All right, it's all time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you again soon on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>